You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey folks, blessings on you today. Remember now, the place for a man, for a woman complete in all their powers is in the spiritual fight and right now, today, somewhere in the world, making disciples of the nation. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks, we hope, hope you've been having some good weeks here. It, it's it's the, kind of the time of the year here where I'm located, where we do a lot of sweating. <laughs> we race from one air conditioner to the next one. But having said that, uh, the Lord's been good. The Lord's been very kind, and uh, we're very excited about this program today. Listen, uh, before we begin any of this, I want you to hurry to your computer screen or hurry off of your iPhone or whatever else kind of device you have out there and go to 5qdiscipleship.com. And when you go to 5qdiscipleship.com, you're going to find a quick start guide to how to do a great discipleship group. We call them 5Q discipleship groups, five questions. And by the way, you can ask these questions of biblical texts with other people in the room from now until the end of your life, and they just never seem to get old. They're great, and they're life-changing. That's why we do a podcast called Life-Changing Discipleship, because this isn't just going to be a discipleship group that changes uh, your perspective. It ought to change your life if you're asking the questions all the way through. So having said that, go to 5, and that's that's the actual number 5, okay? Put the actual number 5, then Q, discipleship.com, and you'll be able to sign up for the Quick Start Guide, and I think you want it. I mean, I really do think you want it. Furthermore, they have cards there, and you're going to be able to make up. You're just going to have to make a copy of the uh, the sheet, but then you can make the cards up from those sheets, and I think you'll love it. So 5qdiscipleship.com. Make sure to get there, and I think you very much appreciate the fact that you did. A couple of pieces of news before we get to uh, going on our topic for the day. Notice this week that there was a, uh, a death in the family. And by I mean family, I mean your family and mine in so much as we are bound together as family, as Christians in this world and in this country. Ron Sider uh, wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. He died at the age of 82 and suffered from a sudden uh, cardiac arrest, and we mourn his death today. In large measure, this is one of the guys that had a huge impact upon the evangelical world and a huge impact upon my life. Now, I can read his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And by the way, it went through some revisions because the more he learned about economics, the more he wanted to kind of switch some things up. The parts in that book where he talked about political answers to the problem of the poor and the problem of the hunger, I, I, I just could just read that and say, I don't think so. I mean, we just fundamentally disagree uh, about which political party has the way forward on these things and what are the political answers that are obvious, et cetera. Having said that, a good bit of this book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, dealt with the fact 
that there is poor in the world and poor even in our own country and that we ought to care about them. And not only should we care about them, it's a biblical mandate to care about them and not just care theoretically about them or theologically about them or care biblically about them, but we're supposed to go do something. In our church, one of the things we say is we want to run to the sound of the pain in our community. And so we've got a church that's, you know, kind of on the smaller end of the count. Uh, we're not a mega church. We're a middle-sized church. And being a middle-sized church, what we can do is different than what a mega church can do, but we can go to the prison. We can go out to the abortion clinic. We can go to the nursing homes. We can go to the elementary school and help kids uh, to understand the Bible and understand how to read better. We can go to the strip clubs. We can do all kinds of things here as we run to the sound of the pain and we look at what Satan is doing to our people and try to apply God and God's message in us and through us into their lives. That's what Ron Sider seemed to be saying. This quote, Salvation is a lot more, says Sider, than just a new right relationship with God through forgiveness of sins. It's a new transformed lifestyle that you can see visible in the body of believers. Sin is a biblical category. Given a careful reading of the world and the Bible of our giving patterns, how can we come to any other conclusion than to say that we are flatly disobeying what the God of the Bible says about the way he wants his people to care for the poor? Now, in that statement, he was worried about how much we give to the poor and give to organizations that are trying to do something uh, with poverty. But y'all, I'm worried personally, not just about the money aspect of it. I'm worried about the sweat equity part of it. Are we getting up and doing what needs to be done on this issue of the pain in our communities? Well, this, this book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, inspired generations of young Christians selling uh, 400,000 copies in nine languages. And Christianity Today, a couple years ago, ranked it as one of the most influential evangelical titles of the 20th century, uh, right after J.I. Packer's Knowing God and Kenneth Taylor's The Living Bible. So, I mean, he's up there in some pretty tall cotton. I just want you to know that what Ron Sider did for us was important. Uh, when you read his book, a good bit of it is, is this is what the Old Testament says about poverty. This is what the Old Testament says about poor people. Uh, then you can learn that the New Testament says a lot about it as well. Then you can learn that folks like Martin Luther and John Wesley and others like them, they thought about it a lot too and wanted to do something through their own ministries. And I'll just say, a lot of people say, well, Ron, Ron Sider was just a radical. He was nowhere close to as radical as John Wesley on this as far as lifestyle, as far as giving, and as far as standing up, writing about it, and then running himself to the sound of the pain. So I love Ron Sada. I love what he has meant to me, to evangelicalism. Love what he has meant to our world Christian movement in moving towards the poor and the oppressed. And uh, you need to go run out and get that book. Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Now, when you read it, I'm going to tell you straight up, some of the data is going to make you feel uncomfortable because it's pointed straight to you. It's pointed straight to me. It's pointed straight to us. But having said that, he goes on to some political considerations I don't agree with. But listen, I can read a book and say, thank God, through the Lord's work, through his perspective into my life, and not agree with everything. So I'm just going to tell you here, 
uh, I'd go read the book. And then if you want some further uh, dynamics, uh, go read John Wesley. He has six sermons on money. And uh, go see what John Wesley said about money and the poor and not just giving financially, but doing something about the pain in your community. Uh, great stuff. Thank you, Ron Sider. Thank you. By the way, I had lunch with him years ago. I was in seminary and because uh, I was actually student body president. I want you to know that I was student body president of my seminary class, uh, my, the, 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 the three classes at seminary that were there. And because of that, uh, we asked in Ron Sider to come speak to us. And because he was coming in to speak to us, I got a meal with him. So I actually can say, hey, I know the guy. I don't really know him. But uh, very much appreciate him and his lifestyle and what he tried to get uh, evangelicals in America to be concerned with. Now, another news item here. Uh, this from uh, Christianity Today with Gen Z. Women are no longer more religious than men. Now, Gen Z, actually, I didn't know this until just now. Z stands for Zoomers. Now, I'm, I'm part of the Boomer generation. These are the Zoomer generations. And these are people born somewhere in the mid nineties. Let's just, so we'll just go ahead and say 1995 to the year 2020. That is Gen Z. So this is, uh, Ryan Burge uh, writes this for, for CT. And they say for decades, we thought of women as more religious than men. Uh, we know that's from survey results. We know it from conventional wisdom. Pretty much you can know it by looking out at the crowd at, at, at the typical church. There's more women here than men. And sometimes a lot more women than men. Now, recent data shows that the long-held trend may finally be flipping. In the United States, young women are less likely to identify with religious uh, with religion than young men. Yeah, get a load of this now. Those born in 2000 or later, women are clearly more likely to be nuns than men. Now, nuns is a category for atheistic, agnostic, or nothing in particular. So, nuns. Atheist agnostics are, I don't really care, just nothing in particular. So, who's more likely to be nuns? Women today. Those born 2000 and later. So, among 18 to 25-year-olds, 49% of women are nuns compared to just 46% of men. Which means what? Which means we have a challenge out ahead of us. And you women in particular, I don't want to say it's not men too, but in particular, you women need to say, I need to get some younger women around me and disciple them that they might be able to disciple people, that those disciples might be able to disciple some women. Y'all, this is that important. We today need to concentrate on women like we've never had to concentrate on them before because we are losing them rapidly, rapidly. And I appreciate what Dallas Willis said. There's not a single problem that we have in the church today that isn't a discipleship problem. I think he's right. And now women are leaving the church. Leaving, women are saying, listen, Count me up as agnostic or atheist or nothing in particular. Now, more than ever, apparently. And that's a problem. What's the answer? What's the solution? I think Dallas Willard is right. The solution is discipleship. And for this program, that means a lot of things, not the least of which we need to gather women together in groups 
and try to figure out how we can build the life of God into the soul of these women like never before. And I will suggest to you once again, one of the, and I'm going to say the only way, but one of the great ways to do that is with life-changing discipleship. And for whatever it's worth, you need to go get the book if you can. It's the 5Q method of discipleship. You can do that from Amazon. But if you just want the quick start guide, go to 5QDiscipleship.com. That's the number 5, 5QDiscipleship.com. Get the guide and start discipling some women. A-S-A-P. All right. Thanks so, <laughs> thanks so very much for that. God help us. Man, we, 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 we definitely need some help. One of the sponsors for our program today is Wesley Biblical Seminary. Folks, I've taught in this school. I'm starting my 35th year. Like next month, I start my 35th year here at Wesley Biblical Seminary, one of the best seminaries in the world. In fact, someone said that's that's what WBS means, this world's best seminary. Eh, all right, I don't know about that, but it's an awful good one. It's one of the world's best seminaries, I can tell you that. It's a place where you can come and check out the various wonderful offerings uh, that we have for you here. we got a lay program called the Wesley Institute. Go to wbs.edu and check out our lay program called the Wesley Institute. You can check out our undergraduate program. Yep, we've got a college you need to discover. Uh, we've got master's programs, and we even have a D-men, a doctoral program, something, really something for all serious disciples. So check it out at wbs.edu. Now, the, the Wesley Institute thing is very interesting. It covers a year-long program of learning the Bible from actual professors for a very reasonable price, and... It has now, we're starting to offer a year of theology with seminary professors. Again, if you want to get a great grounding in Bible and theology through a lay program with no homework, just show up, take notes, and drink deeply, this is one great way to do it. All right. Just got back from a uh, about a three-day seminar uh, in a church. It was a mega church that taught us how to better do discipleship, how to better pray, how to better establish a culture in your church that's going to be an evangelism and discipleship culture. Well, listen, I'm all for that. I want to sign up. I want to learn more. So there we were in Birmingham learning more. And the the pastor of the church, the guy that uh, you know was leading this whole seminar said, I'm going to teach you tomorrow about how to establish a healthy culture in church. Well, I couldn't wait for this. I mean, I, I think I know a lot of this stuff, but uh, I want to know more about how to do that. When he showed up, he says, okay, this is what I'm going to teach you on culture. There are eight characteristics, he said, that Christian Schwartz writes about. And I thought, ding, ding, I know exactly where he's going. And sure enough, he covered the eight characteristics of natural Church Development, written by a guy named Christian Schwartz. Now, you may remember these. Some of you are going to know, oh, yeah, I know that. But most of us don't know about it. It's a little bit dated stuff, but it's still exceedingly relevant. So what Christian Schwartz did was this. He reported the first worldwide study of churches to see what makes them healthy. Uh, now, there have been a lot of studies done about church growth and church health, but this is the book that did the first study that looked at all kinds of churches. There were charismatic churches. There were Anglican churches. Uh, there were churches that were Protestant. He just wanted to look at all of them and say, okay, all kinds of churches from all over the world to see 
what are the characteristics that are common to all healthy growing churches? So he studied a thousand churches in 32 countries on six continents. Nothing like that had ever been done before. 4.2 million responses. And so using empirical data and the Bible as his foundation, he picked up on eight things. Now, the reason that I was so enthused about the fact he was bringing it up, first off, I wasn't going to learn anything new, which I did not uh, during the culture part of this talk. But what I was excited about it is I already teach about it, and I teach about it in three different courses here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. I make sure we, they, all three of those courses are learning about these characteristics. Now, in the very back of the book, Natural Church De uh, Development, and it's called the Implementation Guide. So if there's some way you can find that, Natural Church Development Implementation Guide, uh, what you're going to find at the back of the book is this, a uh, question-answer format. Question. You maintain that churches whose quality index lies below 50 or below average, above 50 or above average, when all scores reach 65, you would say that you can speak of revival in that case. Now, this way saying, 65 seemed to be the magic number so-called. Once you reach that level, you were pretty excellent at that thing, one of those eight characteristics he was talking about. And if all of those things in your church are above 65, the question is, would you say that one can speak of revival when that's happening? And Christian Swartz says, I do. I, I see it that way. In my opinion, this may be the most precise and at the same time most helpful definition of revival I know. Now, I love this because it's based on the Bible, it's based on research, it's based on international research, and all kinds of different churches. And so what he came, comes across as I said, these are the eight things. And there's an adjective to each of the eight things. So, for instance, you can have relationships, but that's really not what is fundamental to all healthy, growing churches. You need loving relationships. So... Having said all that, let me just tell you about what revival usually is in most places. It's a lot of people coming to Christ and a lot of people being really excited about what the Spirit seems to be doing here. The problem with that definition of revival is it doesn't last. And too often it really doesn't change anybody or anything, particularly the culture around the church and particularly what happens two years from now. So for instance, there was some research done years ago about Billy Graham's impact when he was doing a crusade out in California. And what they decided to do was two years after Billy was gone, let's go in and see this simple question. Are there more people in the churches today than there were when he was here two years ago? I think that's a very fair question. If you have having revival and if God has touched this area of the world, then you want to have more people in churches two years Hence, then you had when Billy Graham came, and they found out, no, there weren't. So would you call that revival? And I think most of us would say, no, you wouldn't call that revival. So what is a revival? So Christian Schwartz says eight characteristics. We're going to go down these very briefly. Number one, he said, empowering leadership. Leaders of growing churches, of healthy churches, don't try to build up their own power to become all-powerful. 
one of the most important tasks is to help Christians develop greater degrees of empowerment according to God's plan already belongs to them. So what leaders do of healthy churches are equip, support, motivate, mentor individuals to become all that God wants them to be. Empowering leadership. Second thing, gift-oriented ministry. So pretty much God has already determined in your local church which Christian should best assume each particular ministry in the church. God's already decided that. And he's given a gift to those members for that role. So you need to go find out, well, who's that person? And the only way we're going to know is to be able to identify their gift and integrate them into ministries that match their gifts. And when you do that, that person no longer operates out of their own strength, but they operate out of the Holy Spirit working through them. There's joy, there's success, there's effectiveness, there's happy people. But boy, you get somebody doing something across 10 years outside of the gift orientation, it wears on them, it burns them out. Uh, frankly, frequently, they get an attitude. So the first two things that Christian Schwartz and Natural Church Development said are so critical to healthy churches that are going to enjoy revival over the long term is, first, empowering leadership. Second, gift-oriented ministry. Third thing, passionate spirituality. Faith is lived out with commitment, fire, and enthusiasm. The degree of spiritual passion is demonstrably the point that sets growing churches apart from not growing ones. When you walk in, you can tell, whoa, these people are different. They're fired up. Enthusiasm. By the way, enthusiasm is an interesting English word. It comes from en, which is in, and theos, which is enthusiasm. So, thus. So, enthusiasm literally means the God that's in you. Now, it might mean in the ancient language, the gods that are in you, but we can recognize in Christianity as the God that is in you, and therefore you have enthusiasm. You have commitment. You have fire. And a church that lives its faith with passionate fervor will experience success with many a method. In fact, you may be doing things wrong in your church. That's not the right method. <laughs> really? Doesn't matter as much when you've got fire. A lot of methods can work when you have fire, enthusiasm, and commitment. This fourth one isn't nearly so interesting to me, but boy, it's crucial nonetheless. That is functional structures. The most important criterion for forms and structures in the church is do they fulfill their purpose or not? So for instance, you have a women's auxiliary meeting. Might be a great thing to have or not, but does it fit in with the mission of your church that ought to be an evangelism mission and a discipleship mission, or is it just a bunch of women getting together? Same thing for men, the men's group. Is this really a evangelism thing? a discipleship thing, or is it just a bunch of guys getting together, eating eggs and ham? So functional structures is the things we've got established in the church, are they fulfilling their purpose for evangelism, discipleship, or not? Because church structures are never an end in themselves, always a means to an end. So whatever does not measure up to this requirement whether that's demeaning leadership structures or inconvenient worship service times or programs that do not reach their audience effectively, you either change them or lay them to rest. That's another way to say kill them. And churches 
that want revival are willing to make any change necessary within the kingdom to do so. And they're going to get rid of things that are in the way. So here we go. Here's our list. If you want to know if you're in revival or not, you will have empowering leadership, gift-oriented ministry, passionate spirituality, functional structures, and this, inspiring worship service. I'm going to tell you, I feel a little uncomfortable with this one, but I was with uh, my uh, one of my sons and some others that were trying to talk me into it. But here is what Christian Schwartz says. Is the worship service an inspiring experience for those who attend it? And I'm okay with that. But this is the thing that makes me squirm a little bit. People who attend inspiring worship services unanimously declare that the church service is, here we go, fun. People like to attend these services because they're wonderful experiences. They're not there out of duty. They want to come because, hey, this is fun. Now, I wish... And by the way, this is done across a lot of different languages, so I wonder, you know, does fun in that language mean, I don't know. But but there it is. There's the research. I would put in, declare the worship service is meaningful, is inspiring, is wonderful to attend, but fun? That's almost like one step across the line I don't want to cross. But nonetheless, there it is. Your worship service ought to be enjoyable, ought to be fun, ought to be uplifting, ought to be a wonderful experience. People don't come because they're, they're, they're being dutiful. They come because, hey, I can't wait to get to church. That's health. That's revival. Next, holistic small groups. Growing churches have developed a system of small groups where individual Christians can find intimate community, practical help, and intensive spiritual interaction. We're not just listening to a Bible study, but we want to know how we can apply these insights to everyday issues that we're going to be in even this week. Now, y'all, if your church doesn't have a bunch of small groups, then you're not much of a church. You're not all the church you need to be. You're definitely not in revival. Because if Jesus had a small group, made disciples in a small group, and he's telling you at the end of Matthew, I want you to go and make disciples. And that's the way he made disciples, was in a small group. (laughs) I'd say, hello, wake up. It's time to get in a small group. It's time to get in a church with small groups. It's time to make sure your church has a bunch of small groups. Now, this is what I've heard. You got a hundred attenders in your church, you ought to have seven small groups. There you go. You might have... Two or three right now. You need to get up to seven if you want to be healthy, if you want to be in revival. Holistic, small groups. Intimate community, practical help, and intensive spiritual interaction. All right. Empowering leadership, number one. Number two, gift-oriented ministry. Then passionate spirituality, functional structures, inspiring worship service, holistic small groups, and this, need oriented evangelism. In growing churches, people are not manipulated by the gospel. Their secret is they're sharing the gospel in a way that meets the questions and needs of non-Christians. I'm going to tell you the best way to do that is go love on some people. And by doing that, we're saying, go take them out to eat, have them over into your homes, go mow their grass for them. I mean, do some kind things for them. 
And that is going to provide a tremendous bridge of God. That relationship is going to be the bridge that God walks over into their lives from your life to theirs. But you just say, I want to love on someone. I want to show them hospitality. I want to share my story with them. And then I want to challenge them. Hey, would you like something like that? Would you like the same kind of experience I've had? Would you like to come to church with me? Well, that's need-oriented evangelism, and it works. As long as we've been doing surveys on evangelism, what we know is relationships are hugely important, which leads us to the final thing. Loving relationships. Growing churches manifest a measurable higher love quotient than stagnant or declining ones. Things like this. How much time do members spend with one another in each other's homes just talking over a cup of coffee? If you never have that, your church probably isn't very loving. But if you have a lot of that, you might be on to something. How generous is the church in doling out compliments? How generous is the church in doling out I love yous and hugs on a Sunday morning? To what extent is the pastor aware of the personal problems of the lay workers in the church? How much laughter is there in the church? Uh, these points and a lot of others help you to understand, are we a loving group of people or do we just say we're loving and we don't love I'm going to tell you, one of the ways you can know you're a loving church is when a visitor walks in, do people talk with them? Will they have, before they leave your church, five good conversations? And most of the time, the answer to that is no, they won't. I walked into a church the other day, just the other day, and no one talked to me except for the pastor's wife, and she was talking to me because I was with a son of mine who was talking with her and me. So I had one conversation. No one basically talked to me, and I was suggesting that's not a very loving church. If you want to be in revival, if you want to attract people to your church, loving relationships are huge. Now, these principles are universally valid, can be transferred to individual churches, but this is the key. They're going to look a little different in every situation and have a positive relationship, both quality and quantity growth in the church. So you would take a test, and this is what Christian Schwartz said, and you can go kind of try to ferret out this test. Uh, I found it on online. Uh, let's see here. It's ncdchurchsurvey.org. And my church has taken this test two times. And when we take it, what they want you to do is go to your lowest score and work on that. And if you do that, I think it's like 85% of the churches who do that just work on their lowest score will grow substantially that year. And so you retake the test, again, find your lowest score and work on it. And I was just at the church that said, we, we did this for 20 years, just trying to get better at the lowest thing we had going. So this is, I'm going to, three quotes here that he has, I just found fascinating. This is the first one. Churches with a thousand or more in attendance are the exceptions. By contrast, the rule should be churches of 100 to 200 attendees who continuously help new churches to be born. If you want to be an effective evangelistic church in the world, that is the way you can make your most effective contribution. Don't wait until you're 1,000 or 2,000. If you're 100, you can help plant a church, get her done. Next. 84% of all churches that have done a church profile several times and made measurable progress in view of their minimum factor have experienced numerical growth. Without exception, and they have a score 65 that you're trying to get above. 
when a quality index of 65 was reached in all eight areas, you're growing, you're having revival, you are doing it both qualitatively and quantitatively. Here's a fascinating part of the research. Are you sitting down? You're going to need to be sitting down for this because this is incredible. On average, smaller churches are the better churches. To say it a simplified way, the larger, the worse. This pattern is so significant that it's difficult to see why no one else has come across the pattern. In fact, everybody assumes the other, the bigger, the better. No, that's not true. Smaller churches are the better churches, and that means you have a better shot at revival, a better shot at evangelism, and a better shot at discipleship by being a smaller church that plants other churches. So I present all that data to you for this reason. I hope you can look at that and say, I think we can do those things. I think we can get better at those things. We can teach on them. We can preach on them. We can try to make plans to get better. And natural church development will say, if you have a weakness, and my the last weakness we had as a church were functional structures, they will give you a list of about 50 things you can do to make that better this year. And when you make that better, you will grow because you're getting healthier. You're getting closer to revival, empowering leadership, gift-oriented ministry, passionate spirituality, functional structures, inspiring worship service, holistic small groups, need-oriented evangelism, and loving relationships. That's the stuff of revival, and that's the stuff, the means of grace, the means by which the Holy Spirit can swoop through your church and do incredible things in your church and beyond your church in the world. Go to as fast as you can, five, the number five, qdiscipleship.com. Get your quick start guide to get started on some of this data. All right? It's a wrap. Been an honor to have you listen to Life Changing Discipleship with Matt Friedemann. So make sure to check out our Facebook page, Life Changing Discipleship. And remember, most of all, to get that quick start guide, 5qdiscipleship.com. Check out our books at amazon.com. Just type in Matt Friedemann into the search engine there at Amazon and see what's offered. And always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life Changing Discipleship today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples. God bless you, dear friends. See you back here real soon.